Hello beautiful people. Welcome to episode 1 of Photo Country with Rajiv. A brand new show focusing on image makers and creators in the world of photography and beyond. In this show I try to deconstruct the journey an artist takes to be where they are today. And I try to pick their brains on why they do what they do. It is essentially an artist profile. I'm excited to get on this journey with you and I have very talented light painting artist and a headshot photographer from Christchurch today for this very first episode. He currently works for Canon and I really love his night photography. So without further ado, our very first guest, Elton McAleer. Hey Elton, uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here, Rajiv. How Thank are you? you? I'm good. I'm good. How's Christchurch? Pretty chilly this morning. Packed the kids off to school and ready for another day of going hard out trying to sell my new business. Good, good. So well, why don't you give the listeners a brief intro about yourself and your background? Sure. I've lived in New Zealand for 16 years now. and um originally from london i spent uh, some time there working for getty images which is where i really sort of my stripes in not just being a photographer but trying to understand what makes an image stand out uh, in terms of composition and uh, visual impact because actually they're probably the biggest image library in the world but photography really after that period has always been uh, a hobby of mine and once i moved to new zealand we had kids after a few years and really photography for me was a bit of an escape from from being a father all the time as some people might take up goal for football or squash but when you've got young kids really the only time i ever had was after they'd gone to bed and so i found myself and i've always had an interest in night photography and light painting i guess i'm a frustrated artist more than a photographer but i've never really had the skills to to, to be a painter or an illustrator or a graphic designer but because i'm a, a techie geek nerd i found getting into the photography you know quite easy and i've always had a, a lot of experience in my career through my career was in mainly color management and printing and and that sort of thing and the photoshop is is something i've used since probably the mid 90s so i've always had the skills on the back end and it just seemed to make sense to really try and you know push things with the photography itself and as i say that was really an escape for me sometimes too much you know i'd receive calls from friends you know my wife's trying to find me at 4am in the morning and i'd be out of <laughs> out of phone reach at fodipur beach or at murawai or bethels and lurking in a cave at, at low tide with the tide creeping in <laughs> so yeah i do like the i do like the sort of adrenaline buzz that you get from being out in nature particularly at night it can be a bit scary at times but yeah the results are pretty good yeah so the, the light painting is something that I'll, I'll always enjoy i have i've used a pixel stick for quite a few years which i find a really fun tool and uh, i've even started doing some animations around that which is really is a, a labor of love it's in order to get one second of animated pixel stick video you're looking at 30 seconds per shot and then walking with the pixel stick during that shot and obviously you use a, a, a remote timer you're probably looking at about 20 minutes shooting for every 1 second of animated pixel stick video because of the length of the but the results are really cool yeah because you can get real life reflections especially if you do it out at the beach and i've always had 
you know, some good feedback on that Pixel 6 stuff, which it gives you a bit of a point of difference. He's that Pixel Stick guy. And I like doing the Milky Way stuff as well. And again, I've tried to put a bit of a spin on that. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the multiple exposures I've done of the Milky Way. There's, there's one, if you look up a multiverse, there's maybe, I think, 15 or 20 of me staring up at the Milky Way. Which uh, is something, again, just trying to play with it and have some fun and, and also keep warm by running around in the dark. What are your favorite places in Auckland to shoot? I've always been a big fan of the West Coast. I've never ceased to be amazed at how dark it is out there. Coming from London, you just never find a dark sky. And you know, Auckland's a pretty big city, but yeah, you only have to go over the Waitakere's and a lot of that light pollution is just cut right out. I remember about three or four years ago, I was up at, I think it's... Mount Donald McLean, just the other side of Huya. And there was a big Aurora Australis kicking off and people could see it from Christchurch. And we even got the, the sort of pink effects in Auckland, which is pretty cool. And I think that the solar maximum is, is happening again now. Um, just looking on Facebook, I saw some people that actually got that same bright pink sky effect in Auckland just last week. And so we're really lucky. It's one of the few big cities in the world where you only have to go half an hour to get dark skies. They're not as dark as down in the McKenzie country, but certainly I've never had any issues shooting the Milky Way in the middle of winter. It's especially, I think Fodipu is my favorite place. It's a bit of a drive and it's a 20 minutes down the unmade road to get there and then a 20 minute walk across the dunes. But certainly the sense of isolation and I think almost spirituality that you, you feel down at Fodipu is quite magical. Yes, that's one of my favorite beaches in Auckland as well. It's isolated and it's got a quite a feel to it. Yeah, I, I was out there and again, maybe it's about seven or eight years ago, it was a, a, lunar, a lunar eclipse and it probably wasn't the best place to shoot, but it was quite a good night and the eclipse started happening and, and then the clouds sort of came over and the effect was still pretty good. But after a while, the clouds rolled in and it had gone from being a full moon, you know, you could see for miles. And then the eclipse started happening. It got a bit duller and then the clouds rolled in. And honestly, it was like, it became pitch black to my perception. <laughs> and it was really the only time that I've ever been shooting where I really just got scared. And I packed up and left. Just <laughs> the stories of the shipwrecks and ghosts at Fodipu started flooding into my mind and the wind got up and I just thought, no, no I need to go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind getting battered on the rocks by the rolling road waves or anything, but I do get the willies sometimes if things okay. change suddenly, you know. So I, I want to go, go back to your light painting. So how did that kind of start and uh, what's your process like? Like how, how do you do it? So there's a few, um, there's a few tools. I've always been more into kind of gadgets rather than lenses. I've got a few lenses, but I think... For bang for the buck, for my images, some of the money I've spent on sort of light painting tools uh, using fairly standard lenses has, has been has been of benefit to me. The main tool I use for light painting is it's a device by a company called Proto Machines. And I think the model is called the LED2. And it is a handheld uh, torch, effectively, that's very bright. But it's got an LCD screen on the front of it, and it allows you to select the red, green, and blue color that you want. So essentially you've got 256, if not more colors, each of which you can make uh, brighter or, um, or darker, depending on the type of work that you're doing. And you can program up to four or five at once. And it's even got a little joystick that will allow you to cycle through the colors. But there's some that I've done at Mirawai where I've been standing a hundred meters away from the cliffs and putting like a rainbow effect across the cliffs. They're all done in a single exposure pretty much. 
And these are the ones where I'm lighting elements of the landscape. Another one I did that one, I think won a couple of, I won a People's Choice Award actually up in the Tudorangi Gallery um, was of the lighthouse up at Fodipu. And I was standing on the, the, the tidal flats, so I had a nice reflection with a wide angle lens and I painted the lighthouse a very vivid blue colour and met the orange coming from the steelworks behind. And the, the effect is really stunning just to be able to pinpoint those elements in the landscape and give them a slightly unusual feel. Again, gives it that slightly magical feel to it. And the, for people that didn't know that the lighthouse is only maybe 30 metres high, it really looks like a mountain because we've got the wide angle lens and it's pushed a little bit further into the background. I was probably only 100 metres from the lighthouse, but shooting with a, a 24 mil lens, it looked like it was half a mile away and massive. So the idea of just using my normal landscape composition theory, but playing with that a little bit, trick the eye into thinking things are and not what they seem is really the key. But in terms of technique um, for doing light painting, whether it's, whether it's painting the landscape or doing imagery in the air, the key really is obviously long exposure. And then with something like the pixel stick or even using, I spend a lot of money in Kmart on the little $5 fairy lights, for example. And it's quite easy to make quite effective light painting tools. For example, to make the spheres that a lot of people like to do, you can pull out a lot of the bulbs on a meter-long string of fairy lights and put a little weight on the end and then just spin it around. And as long as you're spinning when the camera starts and when the camera stops, you don't get any trail of yourself moving in or out of the picture. But the key really is finding the right aperture so that what you're light painting doesn't blow out the photographs. Because right. usually in something like that, you've not got control of how bright the fairy light is. It's usually a little bit of a trial and error, depending on how dark it is. But typically I'd be doing 30 seconds at probably about F5.6 usually, just so that the, the light source doesn't burn out because compared to the surroundings, it's a pretty bright light. And the same with the pixel stick. Once you, when I'm walking through the, the scene, typically I'll just do things with the pixel stick like painting. Maybe I should just go into what the pixel stick is very briefly. It's a device that has a little SD card and you can load any image onto the SD card. And the device itself is a two meter long strip of lights that looks like a giant window cleaning squeegee and you hold it vertically and you start your exposure and you select the image that you want to paint and you walk through the scene holding the pixel stick vertically and essentially it flashes each column of pixels in the image one at a time as you walk. So the faster you walk, the more stretched out your image is and the slower you walk, the more compressed it is. It's a very bright device, so typically I'll use it on maybe 10% of its strength because I'm in a very dark area, but you can also use it in areas I've used it down at the viaduct under street lighting, just make it a bit brighter to compensate. But the effect that you get once you've painted your pixel stick is let's say, for example, I've got a load of phrases, one of which is be free. And you can simply walk through the scene. And once your exposure is taken, the words be free appear in a kind of quite an analog, slightly pixely way floating in the air. But what makes the image grounded for me in situations like that? is if you actually have some water or reflections underneath it. And so you're capturing a moment in time. So it's a digital image that really was in the air, but only one pixel at a time with a real reflection. Right. So people really think, how on earth did you do that? Is it a composite? Is this Photoshop work? And having that reflection is, is almost like your proof that it really happened. Because yeah. <laughs> you, you, to do a reflection on, on a sort of sandy base and it's all the higgledy-piggledy and you would never do that in Photoshop. So 
Yeah. yeah, that's what makes it a bit unusual. And those images got good impact. But I've sold quite a few prints of just those statements. Right. Yeah, it's definitely yeah I talk. think I, I remember some with the wings and all that you did. How you? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I've done some uh, angel wings behind people. I, I sort of gate crashed one of those events. Remember they used to do art in the dark up in, I think, Western Park in uh, Ponsonby? Right. Where have various art installations and thousands of people would go and look at all of the, the lights. It's like, so I took the pixel stick down there one year and just had a queue of people waiting to get angel wings painted behind them. Okay, let's talk about what's in your kit bag. So what do you work with? Okay, so I'm still shooting with an SLR with a mirror. So I'm still on a 6D Canon. It's still the 6D, the 6D Mark I. I never went for the 6D Mark II because I'm a low light guy. And for the benefits that it had, the feedback really was that the noise was a bit worse than the than the first one. It's uh, for my night painted my, my night stuff. Trusty old Rokinon or uh, Samyangs. Typically, the my my go to lens for night photography is the twenty four mil. It's a one point five, which is a slightly unusual aperture, um, and that's the the Samyang. It's the cine version of the lens, which is a little tricky to work with. Often involves blue tack and tape because it's got no. It's got a declicked aperture. And just repeating the shot and keeping things exactly the same is tricky. But I do find that being able to have that declick can sometimes be the difference between over and under exposing on the star stuff. And again, it's really good for, I've got a shoulder mounted rig and for video with a, a follow focus, it's, you really need that declick aperture. So that's a real workhorse for me. It's a manual focus, not a particularly expensive lens. And for me, that the Samyang is all is all in the glass. They're, they do they do good lenses. And then the seventy to two hundred IS Mark II from portrait work and yeah, not so much street photography, but a sort of compressing landscapes down. And I've got a jobbing twenty four seventy. Can't remember the brand. <laughs> and the Nifty Fifty, which if you are out on the street snapping stuff, people don't want a lens right up in their face. And the smaller the lens that you can do for street photography, the better, I think. It's just to take away that intimidation that you can cause by having a huge camera. So let's talk about your career progression. So you worked with Getty Images for a long time. Talk us through your experience there. I was the, at the time when I joined Getty Images, my, my first trial was in the Halton Deutsch Library which is one of the largest collections of editorial and antique imagery in the world. So they had a lot of glass plate negatives, acetates and silver halide. Some rooms that had to be temperature and humidity controlled so the film wouldn't explode. And I think they had something like 16 million images in the vaults there, physical images, of which they'd only scraped the surface of about 5%. And the people that worked in there were an unusual bunch. They really were. They were virtually part of the library. There was a, the system was in their heads and they lived and worked there their whole life. We'd have a list, uh, they'd have an X list of people um, who might potentially die. And at whatever time of day or night, this team would have to go into the archives and trawl out the historical pictures, whether it was going to be the Queen Mother or <laughs> various historical figures. And, and essentially, my role there was to begin the digitization process of all of those archives, which was a successful project. And I ended up moving on to the, to the wider Getty Images organization. And it was the digital production manager there. And, and my role then was to set up and build the, the scanning department and the retouching department to digitize their core collection of images, which is basically the ones that were sold the most. And I don't know how much your listeners know about um, how stock imagery has grown and changed over the years, but when I first started, if you wanted a picture of a dog on a beach, 
you'd phone someone up and um, they'd say, hello, and you say, yes, dog on a beach, please. And say, okay, hold on a second. He'd ask you some questions. And within about two hours, if you're in London, a courier on a motorbike would turn up with maybe with 24 negatives of dogs on beaches in various situations. And you'd choose the one that you wanted and you send the rest of them back. And then you take that transparency to a scanning house and you'd get the scan done to the size that you paid for. And then that would eventually appear in a magazine with a dog on a beach. And the process was just long-winded. The photographers liked it because there was a, a higher conversion rate for the images because you weren't trawling through so many. But the actual expense of not just purchasing a stock image for use, but then producing it in your printed matter was was huge. And we'd have collections all around the world, you know, these basically suitcases and flight cases full of transparencies. And I remember we, we would repeatedly have to send the core collection over to countries like Bolivia or Nicaragua, and they'd say, oh, no, we need the collection again. Bandits have stolen it. There was tales that virtually modern-day highwaymen had held up the, the courier and taken the whole collection. In reality, someone had probably just sold it. But, yeah, it was reasons like this. And obviously the expense of making all of these multiple transparencies for, for every single image on this without, and only selling 10% of them was, was really prohibitive. And so the decision was made, along with the rest of the world, to start digitizing and selling online, which presented its own whole raft of problems and challenges, most notably in the early days from the photographers. Because these were the days, um, remember, when you would never put your real name on the internet. You'd be Nerf Blaster 69. <laughs> to reveal who you really were on the internet would be um, professional suicide. And so I'd have photographers phoning up and saying, no, my images are going on the internet over my dead body. They would they would never want their images to be on the internet because it was just a free-for-all. And there was a, just in the days where before credit card online and you just would never put real personal information in. So the, that was a big challenge, getting those photographers on side. And then, of course, the next challenge is that if you bought an as a magazine editor or a, a, an art director, all you needed to do was choose the picture and your the industry that's pretty much disappeared, the repro graphics industry, would sort out the, getting that image from a transparency to being on a magazine page or in a book. And so all of a sudden, we're trying to sell a finished product to an industry that had no idea what to do with it. They were expecting a CMYK file to put in their Quark Express or InDesign. And mm. I don't know if you listeners know much about print process, but there's no such thing as a single CMYK file that will work on multiple printing processes. A newspaper image has to be prepared very differently to a magazine image, for example. And uh, so that was really what led me into my core sort of skills of color management, which was trying to advise customers what they would do with this RGB image in order to get it to work on their press. Because an RGB image is an asset that you can use on all different printing processes. And so it was, I really had to, to cut my teeth on learning color management. And that's really what got me into color management as a consultant, which I did for several years after Getty Images, which was being that missing link between the art and design sector and the printing press. So what prompted your move from being a color management consultant in the print world to now pursuing photography as a profession. I guess that's really down to the changing world. 
really the changing the move online. I was uh, I, I ran a color management business for about four years out of an office in Glen Eden, and I had several. I had a fairly good customer base, but one by one, a lot of those print companies could either consolidated into bigger print companies, and the one of the main services I would offer would be to calibrate the presses and calibrate the monitors and the inkjet printers so that everything looked the same. And when I started that process, the proofing part of printing was still really important. The the ad agencies that I would work with, like Saatchi and FCB, they really would always want to see the proofs before the job would go on the press, and the brands would sometimes want to see the proofs. But as the printing world changed, it became more and more automation, less of a requirement, and also perceived, in my opinion, a change in the quality threshold that was required because as the print product became less important, the quality control around it got either got automated or was not of as much interest to the buyer because their focus was shifting towards online commerce, you know, and the shift. And, and so really it, it was up to me to work out where that was going to go in terms of what content and what was going to stay viable. Moving back up the line towards photography was really the way to go for me in terms of staying involved in that in a similar industry and using the skills that I would developed over the years. So that business I closed down in 2016, 2017, and we moved to Christchurch a couple of years ago, and I I quickly got involved in an imaging company down here, which was providing a similar service to Getty, but more to government organizations. So we were scanning things like Antarctic diaries and museum pieces and old books and plans and maps and things like that to a pretty high-end level. And so in in a lot of ways, it was still really close to what I've done in terms of repro and scanning. But again, scanning itself has died and now 90% of those places are using cameras. So it was really, yeah, that's pretty serendipitous for me that I could combine that um, work experience with my love of, of cameras and face using face ones every day is, was a dream for me. In today's world, this when technology is so democratized because of the availability of so many different cameras at different price points, right? So you have a wide range of SLRs, mirrorless for every type of photographer out there. Becoming a professional photographer at this point in time, is it difficult or is, is it challenging? Like how, how do you differentiate yourself? Good question. And maybe ask me again in six months. We'll see if business has been a success. But I'm not, I would never want to bag my fellow photographers because I, I love looking at people's images. But I think that there's a very clear difference to me between being a photographer and running a photography business. And that's where I'm really going to try to put my initial focus. We're starting this venture really without much capital behind us. I'm using kit that I've already got. But when I look at what the, the competition are doing, and there are some that are doing things very well, but typically a photographer's website will be full of lots of, yeah, full of great images and often seeming to wanting to be all things to all people with a little message. Get in touch if there's anything that I can help you with. Whereas just from running my own business, so I've learned over the years that you really need to target a niche and market aggressively to that niche. Know who your ideal customer is. You know, one of the great things about running your own business is that you can choose who you want to work with and what you want to provide them. And the rule of business number one is that what problem are you going to solve for your customers? And over the the recent years, I've always had an eye for doing really quite, I suppose, eye-catching street photography style headshots of people. 
And when you look through LinkedIn, this sometimes still feels a little stuffy. People have got their, I have nothing against Pete Hurley style, but to me, that's a bit blue steel. It's a little bit, it's a little forced sometimes. And I know that a lot of my peers, and I'm getting on a bit, but I think a lot of certainly the younger generation I can speak to, they do not want to have that corporate tie suited headshot because that's not who they are. That's not what their business is. And that's not the image that their business wants to to promote. And so by attacking the niche of the slightly younger, still professional, but especially in this day where people are working from home, approachable and more relaxed style of, of corporate photography, I think that that's something that will, yeah, that can work for me if I promote it and market it correctly. So really it's not too much, not so much about how good a photographer I am, but why I'm doing it. It's all about, it's, you may have seen the famous Ted talk about selling from the inside out. The Apple thing is like why we do it, not what we do. By the way, do you want to buy a computer? I'm really trying to follow that pattern, make myself relatable, help people understand why they're going to have a relaxed, fun time doing it and what problem I'm going to solve for them. And by the way, they're going to get some great headshots out of it. And so by building that customer base, that should, in I hope, allow me to sell more things to the same people, which is always easier than trying to sell one thing to lots of people. Right. So, you know, that, that's my business model in a nutshell and we'll see how it goes. It's, I'm trying to learn from mistakes that I've made in the past and, and really just try to offer a service that people are going to want and people are going to enjoy. So is this only in Christchurch or, or, but, or you, will you travel around doing stuff? I, yeah. Any last thoughts? Alter. What do you want to somebody who's getting into photography or, or is thinking of getting into a sort of semi-professional weekend warrior kind of a guy? Do you have any message? I, I think that my one takeaway for people would be to, to really follow your passion to find your style and something that's going to be, be the point of difference. As much as we can all want to get a great photo of the Wanaka tree, and we've all seen the Wanaka tree. Show us something we haven't seen before. Show us your personality in photography, and that's what's going to make people remember you. Not a, not a great photo of something you've seen before, but something that causes people to stop and think, ah, that's a bit unusual. I'm going to find out some more about this guy or this girl. So Elton, where can people find you online? Do you have a website and how can people reach out to you? Yeah, sure. The website is currently live for the business and that is www. And it's a bit of a long one. Dot Elton Macalea Photography dot com. And that's Macalea spelled M-C-A-L-E-E-R. But I guess if you Google Elton Photography, Christchurch, I should be up there if I've done my work. And what's your uh, uh, Instagram handle? It's Elton McAleer, as one word, and the same on Twitter and Facebook. All my profiles are public. Yeah, if anyone wants to reach out and get in touch, uh, always glad to help. Awesome. That's good to hear, Elton. Thanks for that. Thank you so much, Elton, for coming on our first episode. It was so kind of you. It is amazing to hear about your career trajectory through Getty Majors, printing, to finally ending up at New Zealand as a light painting artist and now at Canon. We are lucky to have you here. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed this episode. In the next episode, I talk to a good friend of mine and a fellow photographer, Neil Pereira. Interestingly, he loves collecting vintage gear. So stick around and you will get to hear from some amazing photographers around the world. Leave us a review on Apple or follow us on Spotify or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Till then, stay safe and keep clicking.